You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Vijay Kumar, who is a professor. I guess you're now an emeritus professor at Illinois Institute of Technology, which is, I think, now referred to as Illinois Tech, right? And there you teach courses on design, and you've also worked with many companies and also authored this book here, 101 Design Methods. Welcome, Vijay. Thank you, Greg. Glad to be here. Now, this book is actually fairly detailed and offers up a variety of methods, many of which I have seen in one form or another. And these are tools, techniques, frameworks, and processes which organizations, companies, individuals can put into practice to help unleash new ideas and help them to kind of implement and execute on these new ideas. And, you know, I was wondering, this comes out of schools of design, right? And there are a couple of schools of design out there. Most of the schools that have technology in their name, we don't think of them as schools of design. So what is it exactly about design? I think a lot of people outside of business, when they hear design, they think, oh, these are the artsy fartsy people (laughs) who are creating fonts and so forth, or maybe they're the kind of people who are designing the mouse or something like that. But design goes much deeper than that. And design is really about idea generation and idea evaluation and idea execution. So is the role of design or how we think of design, is that changing over the last couple decades? Yes, absolutely. I was fortunate enough to go through that journey uh, from the early days of design, as you mentioned, it is hearty, hearty folks doing some visual improvements. Um, in the um, 1980s, that was the perception when I was beginning to practice. But things changed over a long period of time. There's a transformation happening. So I was glad to be part of that journey, especially when I started my journey at Illinois Institute of Technology as part of the Illinois Institute of Design in 1987 as a graduate student, where design was taught as a reframed discipline. It's not about aesthetic improvements on products or whatever you do, but it's much more than. At that time, the change was the focus on research. In order to do design, you have to really understand who are the users, and you have to really, in order to do that, you have to do deep research. Right? So in those early days, research came into the design field. So research drove the idea generation and the improvement of products that design folks' attention span. So it, it, it started becoming broader and broader. That's the main transformation that I have gone through. When I'm writing the book, it is not about research, not just about human-centered design. It's not just about strategic planning. It is about the holistic way in which we can look at world's problems and try to come out with solutions, working with other disciplines. It became respectful of interdisciplinary approaches to solve very complex problems. So that's where we are today. So if we were to think about from a corporate perspective, do you think design plays its biggest role in R&D, right? At the kind of edges of the organization where it's trying to figure out what's next, or is it really integral to the strategy function? Actually, both. Both, and in several other roles as well. If I really think about my students, where do they fit in corporations? So there's really a distinct role that they take on, depending upon their interest. So, for example, some folks are really interested in research, going out in the field and talking to people, getting insights and developing very good insights. They're passionate about that. So they get into that flow of helping other teams with research and insights. That's a very good starting point for other teams to build on ideas. That's one role. 
The other role that I've seen my student play is um, strategic planning. Like they get into the business planning and who are, who is, who are more familiar with financial analytics and business analytics, they get into the strategy planning workflow along with the team members. The third kind of folks, they're generalists. They consider themselves as integrators, right? Integrators, they, they play the role of getting people aligned on the common goal. They integrate insights from various fields, from the research, from the engineering department, from the marketing department, from the business department, finance department. Some of my students are excellent at that, of integrating insights from various fields as if they play a facilitation role rather than one specific area in which they have expertise on. So those are examples of different ways in which design can play a role in operations. Well, you know, there's this famous distinction that Jim March introduced between explore and exploit, and the book is about innovation. And so we think of innovation as belonging to the explore domain rather than the exploit domain. And, and I was wondering, do you think that organizations need to have designated innovators, right? Is there a division of labor here or is it that kind of everybody needs to have that line split down the middle of their heads where they're doing a little bit of innovation regardless of their role? Yes, I think that everyone needs to be innovator in an organization in whatever form, whatever level that you can contribute to. Even I talk about that a lot. Even the accounting person working in the accounting department very far away from the design team and the brainstorming sessions. Um, if they have the mindset that is culturally developed within the organization, they can work on their spreadsheets, make other things, make the spreadsheets do better things for making the accounting easier, right? Those are, those are small innovations that they can do. So the requirement or uh, what is needed to drive that mindset in corporations is that everyone needs to be aware of of the idea of innovation, what goes into it, what drives innovation, what is the input, what are the processes that we can use, what kind of methods that we can use, how do teams work, how do multidisciplinary teams work. So all these things, if there is a good awareness of that, they will, each member need not be expert in all those fields, right? Each member in the organization, at least if they are aware of that, there will be a cultural tendency to be innovative in anything that anyone does, right? So that's what I think should be ideally happening in organizations. But obviously, the real world is different, um, right? So people work at different paces and different roles, and they take on in different tangential direction, depending upon the organization. But um, some organizations, some companies um, are, in my experience, doing an excellent job of creating the culture of awareness about innovation as such, so that people can take on that and then build their own activities around the idea of innovation. Well, well, how exactly do you build that culture? Is it really about kind of leaders demonstrating what it's like? Is it about putting in practice kind of formal processes that encourage innovative thinking? I mean, we all know that some organizations are less innovative than others. And oftentimes, some people say this is an organizational design issue. Other people will say it's a cultural issue. How, how does one put that into practice? Yes, that's, that's a great question. That, that's the toughest challenge, in my opinion, and out of all the design principles that we look at in you know, creating a culture of innovation within an organization has been the toughest one. It's not easily done. Uh, it requires a lot of uh, effort in terms of influencing people's thinking. So that's not easily done. But as you said, it has to come from from different directions. And the executives or the leaders uh, who have bought into the idea of the importance of innovation, they can make a big difference in influencing their team, their, the, the other folks working in the organization by constantly giving examples or demonstrations of talking about uh, the impact the design of the innovation would have to the company's offerings. That's one direction, the kind of top-down direction of influence. The bottom-up uh, direction of influence also happens in many organizations. So, for example, some champions of innovation or design innovation 
emerge out of the lower ranks and they take on the championship role of let's do some really cool project and let's gather some momentum. They tap into other folks, the peers, and then create teams around their ideas and then try to demonstrate, oh, look what we have done, try to demonstrate what they come out with that effort. That kind of a bottom-up approach, right? The organization will have to promote that somehow. They have to give some context in which people can do that kind of work. And then, of course, it can come from the middle level, um, the project integrators or project managers who work on leading or facilitating large projects within an organization. They can play the role of connecting the ideas from all the folks, all the experts who are doing the field work and communicating that to the decision makers or leaders of the organization and making that connection and integration happen. So that also, you have to empower those kinds of integrators. I strongly believe that we need more of such folks, the project integrators in organization. Give them that that designation um, of integrating or facilitating activities in the organization. Yeah, so I think it probably has not been researched well enough, but I always wonder if these interventions actually make an impact. So we all know about CEOs who fall in love with some aspect of design thinking, or they read your book and they think, oh, wouldn't it be great to bring some of these tools to my organization? And oftentimes they'll launch a company-wide initiative. And I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was the CEO of Infosys did this. He invited the Stanford D School to create these workshops. <laughs> Every single person in the company, I don't know, half a million people, they all spent like one day, you know, with post-it notes and magic markers and doing like an intro to design thinking workshop. And I, I always thought that there was a missed opportunity because they could have done something like a RCT, right? You know, like half the people in the company get the workshop, half the people don't. And, and you could see like, what, what's the impact? Do we know whether interventions of the kind that are very popular actually make a difference? Is it more sort of the, I guess, the symbolism of it and the significance of it and the, and the what such an initiative says to the people that they have permission to go ahead and innovate more than it is the tools that they learn in a very short period of time? Yes, yeah, you're right. One of the things that bothers me a lot is exactly that the simplification, the idea of design innovation to such a sort of minimalistic level, it loses the richness, it loses the essence of the power of design. The simplification on, uh, is at the whiteboards and post-it notes and one-day workshop. And there's so many happening now. They've become so popular and attractive. Um, but the effect and the impact is so minimal in my understanding. So minimal because it... Uh, hey, look, I mean, I've paid some bills this way, so <laughs> I hope it doesn't go away completely. Yeah, right. absolutely. So that, that kind of simplification and that, that, is, that has been bothering that took off as a hype and hyped up thing that all organizations need to do. Everyone jumped on the wagon, but then they soon realized that it's not that simple as that. The innovation is real, rigorous, hard work. It requires discipline and it requires time. So these things are not present in these kinds of massive workshops exposed to massive number of people. But it has got a positive. The positive means that a little bit of awareness is created among the people in the organizations, a little bit of awareness. So in my work, I think of these impacts in organizations at three levels, creating awareness, which is creating the basic um, in, uh, awareness about um, how innovation happens and looking at some examples and looking at uh, successes and failures. It's good. That awareness gives you some basis to start your journey. Um, but the next level is experience. Awareness alone is not enough for you to practice. The experience level is can we give people some level of experience, a hands-on experience. The workshops get into that, but they fail to do that because they don't complete the experience. So in order to make the experience work, you have to engage all our teams, 
um, for a longer period of time, working with them probably on their projects. So that gives them an experience of, you, know, you, you can bring in your own methods. And you now these are some of the cool design research methods. Why don't we try it out in the team um, project? And so that's slightly long-term, more than one-day workshop, right? So that gives people an experience feel, but still they may not be fully competent in those methods and tools to do projects their own. Now the next level is creating competence. That creating competence is again, you have to go into a deeper level of understanding of all these methods and it is multi-year of purposeful activity that you need to engage in to absorb the competence of innovation methods and tools to make uh, new things happen. So I think part of the, the confusion that people have is, right, where does innovation science fit, right? Like within the academic departmental architecture, right? So at a lot of business schools, there is no innovation department. And I've known folks who have graduated, gotten their PhDs and become very successful at publishing work, but they can't find a home, right? We at Berkeley, we created a new department at our business school, which is sort of a department of entrepreneurship and innovation. But I think it's also unclear to people whether this is sort of in the realm of the sciences or in the realm of the arts, right? You know, we have our two cultures. It seems to kind of straddle those two cultures, right? I mean, even in the way in which you laid out the book, I think the when you talk about the four core principles of innovation, the first one is build innovations around experiences. This is a very humanistic exercise, right? It's about understanding people, right? And then the, your last principle is about discipline and having a discipline innovation process. And that seems to be a lot more about the science. So is innovation and design, should we think of this as an art or should we think of it as a science? Or D, all of the above. Right, yeah. Yeah, I like the word that you used, saddle, right? It is traveling between art and science. That's that I also believe. It's been traditionally 40 years ago, it used to be more of an art. And design used to be done as an intuitive process, an expression by an individual creating a new design, almost like craft. Craft evolved into that kind of design, which is considered more of an art and personal expression. And, but as I mentioned, as I went through the journey of transformation of design, it is becoming more of a science, all right, more of a sign from that earlier days of aesthetic improvements on products to doing research and doing strategic planning, financial analytics, systems thinking, and creating holistic solutions. So when you when you go, go into those areas, you have to be a scientist to do that. Um, you, you cannot use your intuition or artistic expression to get into those kinds of challenges. So that's what I feel. It is, it is traveling. It is design is becoming less of an art discipline, more of a science discipline, but still it is traveling. It is evolving. That's very interesting. That's what I've experienced. It's not, that's why even today, design doesn't have a the home anywhere in the organization, right? Because of that challenge. So you have your CFO and your CIO and your CMO, but you don't have your chief design officer or chief innovation officer. I mean, I guess that there are some chief innovation officers out there. I'm not sure exactly what their role is and who their direct reports are. But, you know, it's also, I think you highlight that, like so many things that we study in the professional schools, it straddles also the, the boundary between logos and, and techne, between science and, I guess, craft, or knowing about and knowing how, right? And when you're teaching it, do you find yourself going back and forth between sort of a, an objective description of how this process works and then hands-on practice of actually doing it? Can you teach design without actually an experiential or participatory element? Yes, you, you cannot. When I do projects, my projects, of course, even if I've talked about 101 design methods, they are not taught as such. All right, they're, they're more like a reference, creating awareness among among students of the existence of all these various kinds of method that we can use. So that's a good repository to mine and apply to the project. So when I do when I do my classes, it's all 
kind of project oriented after initial analysis of these processes and methods, we change our mindset into, oh, let's do some work now. Let's work on our project. This is the problem that we are trying to solve. And then based on the, that context, the students can decide which methods can be brought into the teamwork. So that time they decide, depending upon the context of the project itself, it, from project to project, it can vary a lot, the methods that are chosen. So sometimes if it requires a um, collaborative brainstorming session that can add value for a few hours to the project, they bring in that method, which is more like a non-scientific, exploratory, participatory method. But at certain times, they said, okay, we have done some prototype, we evaluated, we have got, gained some feedback. Now what do we do? You have to do some deep analysis of the feedback of all the five options that I tested on the marketplace. There we have to use some deeper exploratory you know, brainstorming will not work there. You have to use some deeper attribute analysis or things like the evaluation methods analysis in order to make that determination. So what I'm saying is that it is all context dependent. The mix between intuitive, collaborative approaches to more scientific, structured, disciplined approaches, it is context dependent, depending upon which. So that's what I try to teach in the class. While you're doing the project, when people are selecting this method, I give them feedback. We have a good discussion about which worked, which didn't work, so that we have a better idea about which works in a particular context. And I have a colleague who has taught courses on design here at Berkeley, and she says that the way she views her instructional mission, she thinks of what she's teaching really as just systems thinking, right? Just understanding. And I think I teach strategy, and I think of what I'm teaching is really systems thinking, right? It's about pulling back, digging in, pulling back, digging in, figuring out which frameworks work and, you know, at what level of granularity. You quote Doblin, this wonderful quote, cutting cubes out of fog, Right. And I love that because, you know, in strategy, we talk about the fog of war and how you need to be able to find the, the patterns that are kind of hidden in the fog. So to what extent is this concept of design really too narrow, right? I mean, should we rebrand this as, as systems thinking and then make a lot more headway in our different academic institutions? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is direly needed. Um, I have been in my journey early on. I started my journey as a systems thinker, not as an aesthetic improvement designer. I was fascinated by some of the system thinkers in 1976 when I was an undergraduate student, like Christopher Jones, Christopher Alexander, including the professor at IIT, Charles Owen, who was doing the most cutting-edge work on system thinking and applying it as a design methodology. So he, that that's what attracted me to come to Institute of Design under that professor to learn more about that. So my journey started as, as that. So that I'm a great advocate of that level of thinking that is needed to design to be successful. So as I mentioned, um, only very few people practice that or few people really appreciate that idea. Nowadays, as, I, as we talked about, the design has become so simplistic in nature. People you know, don't really talk about because of popularity uh, reasons, I think. But it is absolutely essential. In my current work, that, that's the core piece of my current research, which is methods are great to do practical level actionable work that helps you take actions. But simultaneously, as you take actions, there is another stream that you have to go through, which is thought stream, thinking, mental models, and visions, and things like that. That comes at a thought at an abstract level, which should drive the thought stream as you progress along that. That should drive which method and what you should do in your project. So the thought, thought stream is interesting. Mental models, that's what probably you or you and others are expert in creating those models that are abstract enough that can be applied to multiple situations so that they use usable, right? So <clears throat> design, design also has to embrace that idea of exploring what are the frameworks 
mental model that we need to understand to take various steps into the design process. For example, we look at during the research process, we do a lot of interviews with people and get all the insights. Now, what do we do these insights to create patterns, right? At that time, you have to elevate yourself to a mental, what is the mental model that I can use to create those patterns among the plethora of insights that I have in front of you? So that, that mental model should drive whether it is a clustering process or a voting process or some kind of a software. Nowadays, generative AI can produce those kinds of thought patterns or insight patterns. So you have to decide what kind of a mental model should drive that. So related to your question about system thinking, I think in design, the systemic way of dealing with complex problems at an abstract level as a thought stream and creating frameworks to affect various stages of the design is very important. That's what I am driving to in my more recent research. Yeah, and so a big part of it is moving from the particular to the general and then back to the particular but also that this there's this very humanistic project which involves empathy, right? So whether it's customer empathy or employee empathy or investor empathy, right? Like understanding the, the perspective and understanding the experiences of other people. And this is sometimes I think they refer to it as customer anthropology or lots of different words for it. I guess the question I would have is, can you apply this empathic mindset to the people who seem to be deficient in their capacity for systems thinking, right? Like for me, a lot of what I think I'm teaching is common sense, right? Like as soon as you learn these insights, they seem kind of obvious to you, right? So, you know, do you see yourself as educating people or uneducating people, right? <laughs> like stripping them of things that might get in the way of, this mindset? Like, is this mindset something that needs to be developed and cultivated, or is it more something that has to be retrieved? So, you know, why is it that people don't automatically have this innovative mindset? Absolutely right. That even empathy to that extent is not an intuitive automatic process. (laughs) You know, hard to think like another person. And it, it is not intuitive. We are in a sense, right? So that itself is counterintuitive, right? In order to teach, in order to create an awareness of that counterintuitive process, you have to take some active steps about what do we mean by empathy? How do we think like another person? So one of the ways in, and, and then of course, you have other point about how do we mix those kinds of human-centered people with the system thinkers. And so in my experience, is uh, mixing people from those kinds of mindsets to do a project together is probably the most effective way in which I have seen these two merging together, some kind of integration happening. For example, human-centered research folks, they go out in the field and talk to people and interview and video ethnography and things like that. Um, in, the, in a team, normally the human-centered experts are the, are the ones that go to the field. So can we add other folks onto that team, onto the field? Can we send this engineer who's sitting in a lab table trying to create a technology innovation? Can we make him part of the team and send him to in the field trip, doing research for at least for a couple of days or in a, a short period of time? Similarly, the other way around, bring the human-centered folks into a strategy planning session or a financial analytics session, bring them in. So I believe that ownership of those actions take place when they first-hand experience the value of something. So the engineers doing research on the field, suddenly part of the field doing interviews, they're talking to customers and trying to get insights. So they, they take ownership of that process by immersing in that context. So that ownership is a big part of my belief that in order to give ownership, you have to make people participate in these diverse types of activities. Well, this gives me an opportunity to pick your brain because I have to give a talk tomorrow on diversity and innovation. And it seems, I think all of us understand the importance of 
diverse viewpoints and disagreement, right, in the innovation process. But I think, do you think that we overemphasize selection and underemphasize treatment, right? In other words, the idea of diversity, there's an exogenous diversity where you have these people with different perspectives and you slap them together. But then there's this endogenous diversity, which is how do you stir it up? How do you take a, a group of people who, who might have unanimity of opinion and fragment it? And that seems to be a lot of what design thinking is about. It's about warding off the process of groupthink. So you can take a bunch of people, all of whom come from different perspectives, and within most organizational cultures, it'll rapidly converge them around a, a single viewpoint. So do you think that with all the discussion of, of, of diversity and the value of diversity, do you think that we're maybe overemphasizing or overestimating the degree to which people's perspectives are static and that we have to constantly be vigilant and in, in, in the sense that we have to make sure that the, the disagreement stays active? I remember, I love quoting Alfred Sloan, who said, I think at one of his board meetings, when everyone agreed with him, he said, all right, I'm, I'm going to leave and I'll come back. And everybody, I better find some disagreement when I come back. Is To some extent, the process of innovation, the cultivation, the stimulation and cultivation of disagreement and diverse viewpoints, and then having a, a process in place for winnowing and selecting the winners without necessarily killing right, the, the diversity that exists in the pool of ideas. Yeah. Great dynamics that I've also experienced in those kinds of disagreements are a common thing, right? And arguments are very common. And sometimes it get, gets into, if you really believe in one point of view, it gets into the point of you know, real adverse situations. In team dynamics, it's very common. But one of the things that we do at the Institute of Design to deal with that is initially have an open conversation about that, that itself, that idea of disagreements. Uh, we say that, oh, you know, all of us can have our own viewpoints. They're all valuable. Well, we can disagree with another idea that another person comes out with, and we're not striving for agreement in uh, sessions like that. So if, you, if everyone has a common understanding of that, things work out much better. But then going beyond that, we say that disagreements are okay. We can have great conversation during those heated exchanges. And that is a part of the learning, right? From what are the insights that came out of those arguments, right? We collect those kinds of insights as well as a team and then work with that. So that gives people an opportunity to appreciate that disagreements are okay, but it can be used in a positive way. But the next level is we say that Misalignment is not okay. That's another principle that the disagreements are okay, but we should be aligned to achieve something bigger than each individual. Right? That's our goal, that you have to create a really cool innovation that we can bring to the marketplace and impact so many people and the society and the environment. That's a bigger goal that we are trying to achieve. So are we aligned towards that? Right? So the, each individual will have designed on that alignment. Misalignment can be terrible in team meetings. Like, oh, I'm, I, I don't align with, align with what you're doing. I'm going to take off. Right? You desert the team. Right? So you can't, that's the last thing the team member can do, deserting the team. Right? You have to be part of the team, aligned in a particular direction, but can have disagreements with, with some of the arguments. So being able to openly talk about this in the beginning of any kind of interaction is very helpful. Now, you also talk about the possibility of disciplined innovation, right? Or I'll sometimes in some of my talks say, let's take an operations approach to innovation, right? So in operations, we're thinking about inventory management, right? And we don't want to have a lot of waste, right? You know, we don't have a lot of work in process, just sitting around and raw materials sitting around. We want to get stuff into production. We want high capacity utilization, right? We want high throughput and so forth. And so I think you can take an operations approach, but some would say that the enemy of innovation is our systems, right? So Six Sigma, all of the folks who believe in innovation, they think Six Sigma is a, is a terrible thing, right? And uh, when you focus on Six Sigma and you get rid of all the variation, then you're necessarily squeezing out all the innovation. You need to increase your error rate and so forth. So how can we 
reconcile these things. How can you, on the one hand, be efficient and reliable and systemic, and yet at the same time, foster new ideas and question the status quo and so forth? Yeah, I think in organization, we have to do both. And the folks in organization, innovators and in organization, we have to do both, in my opinion. But are they in tension, or is there a way to apply these principles of efficiency to the innovation process itself? Yes. Innovation process is a reiterative process. The folks, uh, probably when they, in the beginning of the project, efficiency may not be a question because you don't even have an idea to, to test out and prototype and uh, sort of feel the efficiency of that. You're exploring possibilities and opportunities. At that mode, I've talked about different modes of innovation. In that mode, it's all about exploration. Efficiency can wait. Whether we are, we are not discounting efficiency and effective ways of do, ultimately implementing the operation, we will put it on the parking lot. We'll come to the parking lot later. But initially, it may be more about exploration, creating new ideas and testing out whether those ideas will work through some early prototyping and maybe reforming and all that. That's, why, that's what I meant, reiterate a process that we have to go through. After a few of those exercises of prototyping and testing, the team might narrow down to, okay, this is a great direction to go based on the data that we have. And that time is when that contextually ready to test out the efficiency-based approach, operational approach. What is the team? What are the technologies that need to make that happen? How fast we can make it? What is the budget that we have? So all kinds of operational questions will come that that stage of iteration. And then it continues, right? Even after launching the product, again, it continues. The act, the activity of improving things, improving the efficiency, solving the nitty-gritty problem that arise while people are using the product. So that's a long, long stretch of activity that need to happen. So it is more dependent how you define your role as an operational person or an exploration person or a or, or a fostering launching person it depends upon the context now in the book 101 design methods i think there's two ways to approach this book one is to view each of these as an exercise that would contribute to your overall fitness like books that say here are 101 stretching exercises <laughs> you can do to become more supple but then there's another sense in which each one of these methods is designed for a specific problem, right? And so you could have an algorithm that said, given this problem, you're going to apply these specific methods, perhaps in this sequence. So how should one think about making best use of, of these tools? Should we think of them as a toolbox that we can dig into depending on the situation? Or should we think of this as a workout routine that will you know, help us to become better business leaders? Yes, great question. Two things come to my mind. One is to create awareness by just going through the book, going through some of the 101 you have a little familiar with what can be done, that awareness. The other one is the toolbox idea. Right? That's where I feel the most use of this book. It's a toolbox. Right, just like carpenter having a toolbox with hammer and electric drill and other kinds of tool bits. When he wants to make a chair, he picks up the hammer and the nail and the saw. When he wants to build a house, he really has to pick up the electric and the real power engines and power tools and things like that. So depending upon the context of your project, it's a good idea to select the tool that are appropriate for those projects. So that's where I've seen the use of the book mostly happen among teams that are using these books. And companies, and you know, some of the organizations that I work with, they have been you know, sort of circulating the book to every, every employee, and they, they, they do exercises and they use them in their projects, and they use it as a reference to bring the right kind of knowledge to the specific context. But uh, very interesting other ways in which people are using the book is what I call to gain inspiration. A lot of people have said that I'm stuck in my project. I don't know what to do next and what is the roadmap forward. 
So sometimes opening the book randomly on a page gives them some kind of inspiration. About, oh, that's cool. I can try that out in my journey and in my book. It's an unusual way of using the book. I've seen some people using it that way just to get some kick, some inspiration out of by just looking at a random set of tools. So in your consulting work, if you company comes and says, hey, we're having this problem. First of all, they might not know what the problem is, but they sense there's some problem or place where they need improvement. Do you go in, you know, like a doctor, do some blood tests, <laughs> check their weight and heart pressure, and then go, ah, okay, you know, in my bag, I've got the innovation source book, and I've got the offering activity culture map, and I've got the concept metaphors. Do you sort of know, depending on the situation, which of these tools will be most helpful? The general sense you can make, but I, I wouldn't know which exact tools will work for that client's objectives. So the first step that I always do in my consulting work is the early step of having a discussion about innovation itself. What is the innovation process? What do we do? What are the methods that will help us the process? Now we are getting to the mental models as well. A good discussion about what are the mental models or thought frameworks that we need to understand that will drive our action. So first, have a few sessions like that. That's what normally I do when I start a consulting project so that everyone is um, start appreciating the value of methods and the process and how to move forward. Then get into the project discussion. What are we doing? What is it intent as an organization? So that intent also can vary drastically. And depending upon the intent, you have to go back to the toolkit and suggest some tools. For example, one company might say, oh, we are exploring for new opportunities, right? We are on a blank slate, right? We want to explore new opportunities. That's the intent. So in order to do that, now we can go back to the toolkit. And in order to explore new opportunities, what are the tools that I can use on a timeline? So maybe first I should do a trend analysis tool, right? What are the emerging trends that are happening in the world that will reveal some opportunities? That's just one example. And then, and then we can move from there to explore new opportunity. And then on, 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 at a particular stage, we might say, oh, we need to do more research. Let's go to the field, understand people, and get some insights. And so many iterations might lead to some kind of a, a implementable offering idea. That's one instance of a company's intent. Another company might come out, come and tell me, oh, we have done a lot of users, we understand our customers, we have done a lot of research and our research teams are great. They have produced a lot of insight. We have tremendous amount of data in front of us. So what can we do with that? How do we see patterns in that? And then create some ideas and concepts based on the pattern that emerge out of that data. So there, the starting point is different. You already have a massive amount of data. So you merely go to pattern-finding-related tools that can elicit patterns or clusters or that, then it lead to ideas and go through iterations. A third company might say, oh, we already have developed some early ideas. This is a product that we have developed. Now, what do we do? How do we make improvements and make it market-ready? So you already have a product. So then we, there's a different starting point. We look at tools that are about prototype evaluation and testing and launching and things like that. So you, you see where I'm going. It depends upon the intent of the company. Um, it is intuitively, it, it is commonsensical to select the tools that are appropriate for that. Well, there are these seven modes of the design innovation process that you know you design methods into. Do you find that there is a correlation, in other words, that individuals and organizations that are strong in one area are strong across the board, or is there sort of like a negative correlation, right? The ones that that are good in one area tend to be bad in in the other area. Do these strengths go together, or is it it usually some kind of trade-off? I think usually it's some kind of a trade-off. Some companies are pretty strong in the front end of doing the innovation process. They might be pretty weak on the implementation and strategy side. So it, it could happen. But in my opinion, the companies that appreciate all the value of all these modes 
and giving differential weightages to these to the specific parts of the scale of the modes, depending upon which iteration they are on. Um, so, example, initial iteration of the project, the team will have to, the companies will gravitate toward the early stage of exploration and research and understanding context and seeing patterns, right? So when they are in the later stage of the iteration, they might pick on the operational or implementation uh, side of the mode where implementation and prototyping happens. And even outside the seven mode, there are other modes, which I have not talked about, that a lot of other people are experts in those modes, like, like agile and lean processes and all that improvements, constant incremental innovation improvement, which I have not really touched on in my seven modes. So incremental innovation, what are the, what are the things, lean methods, how do they work and things like that, or constant loyalty testing your brands on, on an ongoing basis, what happens? So I've not even touched those modes uh, in, in the seven modes at all. So companies, uh, in my opinion, this is a reiterative process and at, uh, all these modes are equally important but the weightage changes depending upon what stage of the project that you are on. Now, look, we've been talking primarily about companies, but I just want to talk about people. In my classes, of course, I get paid to teach people about corporate strategy and so forth. But a lot of what I'm teaching is really about personal development and how to become a wiser person, better person, make better decisions and so forth. Do you think that people who get run through the kinds of classes and, and programs and ways of thinking that you do in the book and in, in your school and so forth. Do you think that they become better people as a result of it? Not just somebody who's going to add value to their employer, but is there something about becoming a better human or like a, a wiser person that is a direct result of this unique approach to thinking and mindset development? Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. The human side of the process cannot be underestimated, right? The people are the ones who does the thinking, <laughs> and they are the ones who do the do the heavy lifting of the en entire process. So, so even though we talk about organizations and companies, it's a collection of individuals and people who think and who have those relationships among them. So they are the ones who carry forward the activities. Now, in my experience, the empathy, the early focus on empathy is something that, or how to do empathic thinking. You do a lot of exercises to cultivate the idea of empathy. That's one example of something that people have obviously taken away as a valuable thing. That's just one example, one out of hundred, right? So moment you're empathic, they become a better person in terms of listening to problems and solving it, right? Listening, again, some of the things that we put a lot of emphasis on user research is when you're doing interviews, you're not a teacher, you've not gone there to give a presentation or a speech or influence somebody's point of view. You are there as a learner, right? You're going to listen to people, common people talking about their life experiences, right? The listening, the listening mindset is something that, again, it is not intuitive to many people. Many people are really articulate and they want to sort of push their ideas on uh, during the interview sessions. So we have to put a sort of uh, artificial kind of barrier against those tendencies to be listening, right? Once you listen, you create great empathy and awareness of other people's problems. And then you can build on that. That is, we consider that as a gold, as gold in a material. And the story that people tell us that we have listened to. So that again are indications of making the people who go through that process a better person. And then obviously in one of the major frameworks that we use, I can quickly talk about that. Innovation has about five important attention areas. One is innovation basics. We need to understand the basics of innovation, the processes, methods, and metrics, and things like that, or even the culture of the organization. Those are basic understanding that can be applied to any. Now, the, the, there is something called the mindset. The mindset that we need to focus on. Empathic mindset when we are doing research, understanding people, 
or the exploration of ideas mindset when we are exploring ideas. So the mindset, the second. The third one is mindset is just one of those. One of those, the empathic mindset is just one of those, one of those uh, focus areas. There could be a mindset for understanding trends, emerging developments in the world. That mindset is different. Right? It's not a thick mindset, really knowing, putting your antenna out and feelers out and sensing the changes in the world. Those are all part of the mindsets. And the third one is the action, right? the real action that you do. You say, what do, what do I do for my project? User research and ideation, prototyping and all kinds of, that. that's where the process comes in. And beyond that, there are two more stages, two more areas that we need to pay attention to. That there is the outcome. The outcome from the action can be in terms of um, humanized offerings. We put emphasis on the humanized part of offerings, offerings that come out of their action. Is humanized enough or not? And systems level, is it a system? Are we missing out on all the links and relationships among the idea that we have come out with? Is it a platform level offering? Uh, those are the outcome that we need to pay attention to. And the final one is imp- that's where it is. I think we need to be much more cognizant of how we change the people to be good people uh, or you know, doing good for the world. That's where the impact comes in. Does it impact the society in a, in a better way? Does it impact the people around us to be better, to be good? Uh, does it impact the environment? Uh, uh, am I am I meddling with the environment or not? Is it positive? Is it doing anything positive to the environment or the community that I live in? Is it adding some value to the community or the government, the governance, governance structures? How does my idea impact the governance structure and the regulations the government has? So this framework is very useful when we discuss it as a way in which transformation can happen among individuals as innovators. Well, that sets a pretty high bar <laughs> for people, right? A lot for them to master. Vijay, thanks so much for joining me. This book is called 101 Design Methods, and it walks through a whole bunch of different exercises that you can do within your company or on your own. So thanks so much for joining me. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. It is a pleasure talking with you, Greg. Wonderful. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.